And one of the huge themes that come out came out of those um, those conversations were all the founders were they were problem solvers and they they wanted to help and serve people. Cheap digital ads just don't exist anymore. They know that if they're going to get any serious traction, they have to appeal to a lot of customers and they have to draw customers to them. You can get things right in um, using your D2C channel, then you can apply it to retail. You've got a much better chance of success. So on today's episode, you're going to hear the stories, the strategies, and the brands that wrote the D2C rules. A great episode, you do not want to miss it, do stay tuned. Retail and e-commerce have witnessed an unprecedented transformation in the last decade. The widespread adoption of mobile technology, social media, as well as the lowered cost of cloud-based technology have not only eroded the barriers to entry in retail, but it's also led to the rapid rise and dominance of digital native product brands that sell directly to their customers. On this podcast, you'll get the scoop on customer acquisition and retention strategies employed by high-growth digital native product brands. Not being afraid to spend because you know that customer is going to pay it back uh, three or four-fold. That's when you start to unlock channels in the way that they were meant to be used. And Listen to interviews with experts at the forefront of technology and innovation in digital retail. Three years ago, they wouldn't have come to us because, yeah, the macro trend of cloud, Wi-Fi, broadband availability, that was a real, that was a real problem. Hear first-hand stories from founders of innovative direct-to-consumer brands. Although I was thinking about the competition, I was more thinking about, like, how do I just build a freaking successful business? We focus on driving as much traffic as possible, converting that traffic, uh, and then dumping money back into driving more traffic. These insights will help you consistently 2x growth in specific areas of your direct-to-consumer brand. This is the 2x e-commerce podcast, hosted by Kunle Campbell. As you continue to grow your e-commerce business, access to growth capital would increasingly play a significant role in achieving and surpassing your financial and social goals. Why should you give up equity or pay high interest rates to grow your business? There is a new way to access growth capital that transforms e-commerce businesses. Wayflyer has shaken the way e-commerce operators access working capital. With a dedication to only D2C e-commerce businesses, Wayflyer will fund you on a fairer fund-as-you-grow model, meaning if your sales slow down, so does the amount you transfer back. There's just a simple fee and the funds you need to grow are deposited to your account instantly. It's worth checking out on wayflyer.com. That's W-A-Y-F-L-Y-E-R. Hi, 2Xers. Welcome to the 2X e-commerce podcast show. I'm your host, Kune Campbell, and this is the podcast dedicated to digital commerce insights for retail and e-commerce teams. You know, each week on this podcast, I interview, you know, a, a commerce expert, a founder of a digital native consumer brand, a representative from a best in class, you know, commerce SaaS product. And we give them a tight remit to help you grow, um, you know, growth metrics such as conversions, average order value, repeat customers, your audience size, and ultimately your sales or gross merchant value. 
So on today's episode, um, it's it's a really, really interesting and special one because um, I had actually pre-ordered this book. It's called The Direct-to-Consumer Playbook. It's written by Mike Stevens. So Mike Stevens, the author of this book, is, is a guest on, on today's episode. And, and in his book, which I found quite inspiring, was um, interviews with about 16 founders from best-in-class direct-to-consumer um, businesses. I'd even say they transcend direct consumer e-commerce. They're, they're more consumer brands um, based out in the UK and North America. And he did a very good job to whittling down, you know, what, um, what were the instrumental pillars for their sustained gr- growth over time. Um, he spoke directly with the founders and you have interview, you know, um, just the, the 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 interview notes on there, as well as his takeaways that validate um, his his um, his thoughts on um, you know the key, just the key pillars to to growth. He himself is a founder. He's um, he's a founder of a confectionery D 2 C brand called um, Pe- Pepper Smiths. Um, it was a natural flavor, you know, chewing gum brand of chewing gums in in the UK. That was widely distributed across some, um, you know, grocery stores. Um, he exited that after, you know, a few years of running it. Prior to that, he had worked for, um, you know, the cult favorite Innocent Drinks before they sold to Coca-Cola. So there's there's a, a lot of, um, um, of just knowledge, you know, two decades um, long of, of knowledge of, you know, consumer, what it means to, to bring out a consumer brand on the one hand and, um, you know, how that intersects with our world of direct-to-consumer in 2022. So super, super interesting. We covered a lot. We covered his background. We, we went into like the key threads, you know, the key themes um, across um, all of these D2C businesses um, and kind of like their structure. One thing he really said was um, a lot of them care about their customers. They're very customer centric and um, they they do it in their actions. They they show their customer centric and then their actions less so their words, more in their actions. Um, besides that, really, really, really interesting conversation um, I, I, I had with him. It was, was a longer one, but it was well worth it. So if you are looking to um, just get that foundational collective effort strategy towards growing an e-commerce business holistically and not um, in silo saying, oh, I'm going to do what I bought ads on TikTok or what have you. It's, it's more a holistic way whereby the, you know, um, the, the supply chain integrates with product development and that integrates with marketing and customer service. Um, if if you, you get all of that together and you're looking to see how to synchronize all of those core business functions towards growth, you want to listen to this episode, you want to get the book. Anyway, I would leave you now to to listen to, to the episode and I shall catch you on the other side. Thank you. The 2X e-commerce podcast is brought to you by Klaviyo, the ultimate e-commerce marketing platform for email and SMS messaging. Whether you're launching your e-commerce business or taking your brand to the next level, Klaviyo gives you the tools to get going faster. That is why it's trusted by over 50,000 e-commerce brands like Brooklinen, Non, and Chubby's. Build your contact list, send emails that pop, and create marketing moments that build valuable customer relationships over any distance. 
Get started for free today. Visit clavio.com forward slash 2x to create your free account. That is K-L-A-V-I-Y-O.com forward slash 2x. Hello, Mike. Welcome to the 2x e-commerce podcast. Good afternoon. Great to be here. Fantastic. Fantastic. Um, real, real quick, um, quick, quick, quick request. Could you take a, a minute or, or two to just introduce you know, yourself? Um, you're the author of a book, but you're, you're, you, you have a, a very, very interesting background in um, fast-moving consumer goods or CPG. Um, do you want to just give us a, a breakdown of, of, of where, where, where sure, you're Sure, no from? problem. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I guess I am an orphan now. I've, ri- I've written this book, um, which we're going to get into, um, no doubt. But, you know, primarily, I'm a, I'm an entrepreneur. I'm a founder. Um, my journey started really in CPG. So it's a CPG and food and drink where I've had most experience. And um, it's all started in 2001 when I joined a, um, a brand new startup in, uh, in Shepherd's Bush in southwest London uh, who were making fruit juice. Uh, and I was asked to come along and can I help uh, the founders with their with their operations at the time, and so I so I joined them as sort of as a, as a fresh grad who had a real interest in um, startups and entrepreneurial businesses, but not knowing a lot about this business because no one had really heard of them. Um, and that business turned out to be Innocent Drinks, the smoothie company. And so, so I was always just really grateful and fortuitous that I joined one of the um, you know, the the best uh, and most iconic startups in the last 20 or 30 years but it's important to know the reason i i went along and joined um the startup is because i always wanted to um you know to, ha- to have my own thing to become a founder and um my plan was to be in innocent for two to three years to see what a startup was all about because i hadn't worked in one before and then apply those learnings and and do my own thing as it turned out it was eight years at innocent because it was such an incredible business to be involved with you know such a huge growth um all sorts of projects um, and some fantastic people i work with but it was always a matter of um when not if um i i went off to do my own thing so me and another chap who i met at innocent called dan Trimpton. In 2009, we founded Peppersmith, which was a um, a sort of good-for-you confectionery company. And the reason we went into confectionery is because um, the insight was that the food and drink industry in the whole was was changing rapidly, led by the likes of Innocent, where products were more natural, they were more healthy, they were more sustainable, and with some really great brands to tell the story, to explain to consumers why these these products are so different to what had come before. and this was changing all across um, food and drink, not only in, in fruit juice, but one category seemed to be left behind, and that was confectionery. And confectionery was still dominated by huge sort of multinational companies who had been doing the same thing for, for, for decades, if not centuries. And primarily, it was a sort of high-volume sugary crap mm. um, made very cheaply, and they were very good at that. But, uh, you know, mm-hmm. our belief was, you know, if the rest of the food and drink industry was changing, yeah, consumer demands were changing um, around natural, sustainably healthy and, you know, uh, and better brands. Uh, why wouldn't that be the case in confectionery? So we launched Peppersmith. We started off with chewing gum and we grew that business. Um, so we made um, mints, chewing gum, other sugar-free products. It was available in um, all the mainstream um, retailers. So we're talking bricks and mortar 
Um, so Waitrose, Sainsbury's, Morrison's, W.A. Smith, Boots all carried the product. And I was CEO of Peppersmith and grew the business over sort of an eight, nine year period uh, and eventually exited uh, in 2018 um, we sold the business to essentially one of our biggest customers it was the, one of the biggest uh, health and whole food customers who wanted to buy brands it was the right time uh, for me to make some changes to my own in my own life so it was a good it was a good time to <clears throat> to sell the business and I worked with the brand for a couple of years um, before um, I sort of stepped away mm. and one of the big things you know I was going to do with you know the time after I moved away from sort of running a um running the business as a ceo was write this book and i can tell you about you yeah, sort of the genesis of, of, of how i came i came to write a book about d2c yeah before before we jump into the genesis of um of, of how you, you you know went went about writing the book it's just exciting to to, to know that um you know you, you you first of all you you were at innocent you know um drinks i'd say they were the pioneers of um, you know, in the consumer package goods space of um, how to rethink, you know, a boring, um, you know, just um, vertical or a, a boring line. And, you know, they just looking at the bottles at the time with the happy faces, you know, it was just invigorating from a consumer standpoint. And you being part of it, I think you were you were the head of operations for for, for over your, your tenor there. So that speaks volume in terms of, you know, the exposure in there. So amazing. Were you there at the point of their exit or did you, you know, kind of, um, did, did you leave before prior, prior to, to their exit to Coca-Cola? I left just at the time when um, sort of, Coca-Cola were sort of looking at the business. I mean, Coca-Cola took a took a minority investment uh, before they they eventually buying up mm -hmm. you know, the majority stake of, of Innocent, and I, I and I left just as you know at that very first point. Um, but you know, and it, it was hard for me to leave because you know Innocent was just such a great business to um, to be involved with. However, it, uh, as I said before, I had this desire um, to be a founder. So I mean, I was lucky. I, I mean, I, I work. I was on. Mm -hmm. The startup team at Innocent worked with the founders very closely, but I wasn't the founder. So um, it was a time for me to uh, mm. um, do something for myself. And that's where we, where we started with, with Peppersmith. Yeah. And, and, and that segued you, seg segued you to, to, to Peppersmith, which was like an all natural, you know, mint um, confectioner with a Tringrom and, and the rest. So did you... Um, did you do D2C there first or um, did you just say, you know what, um, this is um, this is a, a pick and go confectionery product. Um, we need to get into grocery stores. Yeah. So back in back in 2009, I mean, D2C was uh, it had started to happen. Or oh, so I would say, you know, sort of e-commerce was a thing. But D2C as a um, as a strategy mm -hmm. was still um you know, it was very, very early on. So what we did, you know, the, the strategy is what we knew. is like if we're going to make a successful business, we're going to have to get into all the shops. You know, so it's about you know, resale distribution. So we sort of built the business and the strategy around that. However, from day one, we had a little web shop. So, um, you know, we were able to serve customers who wanted to put an order in. We cobbled together, you know, we had a little website. We cobbled together um, some very basic uh, off-the-shelf free um press the shop at the time <clears throat> yeah with a with a wordpress <laughs> website and oh, yeah. uh yeah and and the and the big thing was you know we could hook that up to paypal and people could use paypal and place orders yeah. and the, the reason we did it is um because we knew as a new a brand new 
company and a new brand without a huge marketing budget it was going to take us a while you know a long time to build up distribution and what we didn't want to do is um you know disappoint anyone so you know we we were lucky we had a lot of pr early on and what we didn't want to do, if anyone has sort of seen or heard about us we wanted to make sure they could you know they could get hold of the products and i always imagined you know you know a sleepy little village in north scotland which didn't have a suit you know supermarket for miles around um you know and someone yeah. reading about peppersmith yeah. he's like they want the product right but we're not we're not coca-cola so we're not mm-hmm. in every store so how do they do it well they, you know they can jump on the internet they can read about us and if they you know they, they like the sound of it <clears throat> they can uh, get their credit up credit card out and place an order and um yeah that was the idea and it and it worked so well particularly when we had some good pr and when we uh, you know we had a, a steady stream of internet orders every week you know there was a you know packing up orders and trip to the post office that was a, a, a regular thing normally on a friday um but you know we, we had some a couple of really yes. good bits of pr and then all of a sudden you know it wasn't just like you know a, a dozens of orders a week it was hundreds if not thousands it's like holy mackerel this is a thing so you know we sort of built up a, a bit of a presence on on dtc we also did we were one of the first food and drink products on amazon so um amazon started to become a quite mm. an important customer for us so it's like oh internet's a thing um uh, so uh, if, uh, what what year was did you start to what, at what point in time what year roughly was amazon starting to to play you know um a role a noticeable role in um in the delivery of orders yeah so you've, i mean probably 2011 i think we first got onto amazon and then you know mm. amazon mm. as um i guess our um awareness grew um and again because we weren't in all the shops amazon you know was just a place that you know people were visiting um and so you know mm. people were buying the product putting up reviews and that, that became um, quite big and this was before the days of like amazon ads and stuff you know um it did you know a plus pages it, that didn't exist at the time it was just products on the Amazon website. But over the years, we had to get better and better at, you know, sort of understanding Amazon and what we need to do to stand out. And that was the, you know, the same the same with D2C. But really, for me, the big inflection point on D2C was D2C was growing organically without us putting a huge lot of effort into it. Uh, and whereas as we grew, retail was just becoming harder and harder. I mean, all the stories you hear about mm. the supermarkets and how hard they, they are to deal with, 100% true. And probably worse than you can imagine in terms of they're just very demanding uh, and they you know they don't always um they, do, they don't always do um everything they can to accommodate a smaller supplier um so we were finding retail you know we, we were getting successes you know what it wasn't that it wasn't a failure we had some good listings but in in terms of you know sort of scaling up it's like wow this, this is quite hard graft and at the same time d2c was growing without us trying very hard so my thought was why don't we invest more time in d2c because you know it's growing and it seems to be um, um, a good way of doing things, and uh, maybe divert some of the um, <clears throat> some of the efforts from retail. And um, as we were growing our our D two C channel, and we were quite successful, and by the time I sold the business, it was about you know thirty percent of all the sales were coming from D two C and Amazon. So, which you know mm. is pretty bananas when you when you think about it, because you know selling mints and chewing gum primarily, which are our main products, you know that's a very much grab and go product. That's the sort of product you want to you want to pick up at the checkout but we were selling cases of them online and the reason we were able to do that is because um you know we had some active health benefits within the product and it meant if you wanted to enjoy those health benefits you should have it all the time and d2c was a very convenient way of getting 
products to our customers. Um, so they had they had it all the time. So um, we were putting more effort into D2C, but it just occurred to me there was so much to think about in terms of D2C. You know, there was there was pricing, there was distribution, there was marketing, there was tech, all of the things that you know we we all think about. And, it, and I know all the all the sort of listeners and, and people who watch this podcast they yeah they think about it on mm-hmm. you know on, on a daily basis. For us, it was all new. And, and it was also incremental. It was on top of all the things we had to do in, in the retail space. So it's like, you know, my, um, my observation was like, wow, there's lots to think about to get this right. Um, mm-hmm. So let's figure out how to do it. And one of the first things I did is sort of I went around asking my founder peer group. So um, primarily in, in food and drink, but some other CPG products as well. And I sort of asking different um, yeah, brand owners, what are you doing with your D2C strategy? What's working for you and what's not and um the answer was pretty much uniform which was you know what we're giving it a go it seems like a really good channel but we're really learning on the job so um there were hmm. there were a few a few people who were focused on this like like grades.com who were down the road from us who who i knew quite well uh, you know they were all over d2c hmm. but for the rest of us it was you know it was incremental and we were coming at it from a um, a place where there was very little knowledge and we were sort of just learning learning as we went and uh, what it always frustrated me as we were building our d2c channels that there wasn't more best practice out there and um, you know i'm the sort of person hmm. that you know i want to learn quickly and one of the best ways to learn quickly is you know you read blog posts you, you listen to uh, podcasts and you also read books and um mm-hmm. my my observation and frustration in the you know the last five or ten years there is not the book out there or not many um that you know explains as a brand owner this is how you really do a good job on d2c so um rolling forward sort of four or five years eventually you know sort of the time has come to exit out of peppersmith it occurred to me that no one has still written this book and i was still so passionate about d2c and the opportunity and i knew and i i mean i consult and mentor and advise and all sorts of stuff now with lots of brands and you know all of them were still thinking about d2c but yet um you know this sort of the, the best practice was still hard to find so i took it upon myself to spend you know the best part of two years interviewing um Mm. the founders of the best d2c brands that i could find so i could ask them all the questions that either that i didn't know the answer to or wasn't sure about um you know asking them about about product development and product market fit and scaling and, and operations and customer service um, and, you know, sort of unit economics and all the things, again, all the things that, you know, everyone does when we're thinking about, but, you know, I want to find out from those, those businesses who really made this work, what have they done to make this, you know, to see a success knowing what i know but the one thing i did know it was, it was just really hard. I was like, but there are brands out there who've cracked this. Um, so what are they doing that, maybe we're not or other other brands are not so it was about you know those those founders and those business businesses that really have have worked this out you know trying to just extract from them you know their their knowledge their 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 strategies um their wisdom um and then put it all in a book it's the book that i wanted five years ago um and no one no one had written it and i knew if it was going to be helpful to me it would certainly be helpful to lots of other people so that's why i've written this book that's just been released no super super interesting i actually have a copy of the book i i got it um a few days ago i started reading it 
It features about 15 case studies from best-in-class, you know, consumer package D2C brands, um, one of which is Grace.com, which you said um, they, 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 they're not too far from from, from, from you. Huel, huge, huge, fast growth. Snag, I don't really know Snag. I know Bloom and Wild. Um, Cornerstone, there's a lot. Who gives a crap? Tribe. Um, Lick, Lick Paints in the UK. Ugly Drinks, they're in the US. Um, all plants, um, Casper, and um, Hewitt's denim. So, so really, actually, Hewitt denim is not C C to C to um, is not CPG brand. It's it's more um, apparel, but um, yeah, that stands out. So, really, really interesting. Is is there an? On, I know you're very strategy, um, you know, top level, um, you know, growth, you know, type of um, you know oriented in, in the way you're thinking because you're a founder, right? But but is, is there any recurring theme you, you noticed across? Um, all 15 case studies you think every founder should have um, when um, undergoing, thinking about undergoing this this journey, or you know, if you're already in this journey, you know, what to to really have in place um, as a foundational cornerstone to growth. Yeah. So the <clears throat> the thing that I really really noticed as I was going through all these interviews. Um, I mean, I met some fantastic people. These these founders are, <clears throat> I mean, they've got some really, you know, really varied, incredible backgrounds. Um, you know, they, they had done some really interesting things before they set up their own, own businesses. Uh, and um, yeah, it was great to sort of understand who they were. But and one of the huge themes that come out came out of those, um, those conversations were all the founders were, there were problem solvers and they they wanted to help and serve people in my my observation in my world i think there's two types of entrepreneurs or successful entrepreneurs there's those entrepreneurs who sort of see a gap in the market it's like oh you know there's a there's more there's more demand than supply in a particular area. I think I can, you know, exploit that opportunity and, and I can make some money from it. I think that's one type of entrepreneurs. And, you know, that's not to be dismissed because, um, yeah, sort of there's some hugely successful individuals and businesses out there following that strategy. But there's the second type. And I think this applies to pretty much every founder that I met in the, writing the Directing Consumer Playbook is that they, um, they want to solve problems and they want to help customers. And they do it in a you know in a customer centric way, um, you know examples of that. They were um, I mean Bloom and Wild, a really fascinating business who do um, sell flowers, and the reason um, Aaron <coughs> set up Bloom and Wild is because he just sort of noticed what a frustrating experience um, that sending flowers were, uh, or, or trying to give someone a bunch of flowers. And you think about buying so much of flowers, it should be a really joyful thing, right? But it wasn't, you know, it was um, poor quality products. It was, you know, sort of, you know, um, high price, really inconvenient. It just, it just wasn't, wasn't a great experience. And he figured out, um, you know, so this was a, you know, this was something that he wanted to do better. And then he did all the things that working out, right? Okay, so how does the supply chain work? How does um, sort of customer service work? You know, what do people really want? And he set up Bloom and Wild, and his big innovation was sending flowers through. Um, um, through people's letterboxes, which you know, sort of five, six, seven years on, that feels you know, oh, of course that's that's a thing. Um, it wasn't back then. It, it was just a yeah. way of do, doing things bigger. And Snag, you know, said a brand that you hadn't heard of. So Snag is a, um, it's a uh, woman women's um, 
primarily it's a it's a tights company they sell other products as well now but um, when i interviewed brie the founder who's fantastic a couple of years ago with you know they were focused on tights and the reason they went into tights is because um you know brie had a uh an experience um, walking up the high street where her tights fell down and then she told uh, you know had, had the conversation in the pub all her mates like, I've had this really bar- embarrassing experience my tights fell down why are tights so rubbish does anyone mm-hmm. else have problems with tights and all her mates said yeah you know whatever size or shape or age they were it's like yeah we can't get good good tights and she's like you know i can solve this problem so she went out and set up um snag heights is another good example so heights um uh, was set up um by um joel and dan um who had a a business before and they had you know the business didn't go that well and they had quite a tough time and they were um they were having some problems around mental health and you know they, they, they they were struggling and it was through those experiences in terms of looking after their own health, they um, they discovered that you know, sort of, you know, there was opportunities in supplements and um, they, they call it they call it brain care, which is, you know, how to look after yourself a bit better. And they took that learning, that individual mm. pain and learning and applied it to a wider market. And again, the whole thing is about, you know, not selling as many bottles or pills as possible. It's about helping as many people as possible. So th- this was a, a, a really big thing in terms of how can we, how can we best help our customers? And also, I would say, as, as a founder and a strategist, one of the other things that all these brands do really well is, you know, they cover all the bases. They do product development. They do marketing. They do finance. They do supply chain. They do data analysis. They do customer service. They have to do all of these things because if you don't, you know, execute on these things well, you're, you know, you're going to suffer. And particularly, you know, in um, in the DTC space, space now, it's so competitive. You've got to do everything well um, to get it right. But it, but it goes back, you know, these businesses have a mission, a purpose. They want to, they want to serve. And also, you know, another example that comes out of that is the amount of increment, incremental product development. They want to get better every day. Data is a big part of that. But, you know, taking products and making it a little bit better each time they make it so they can serve their customers better is, is a huge part of what they do. Let's take this quick break to hear from our sponsors. The subscription market is predicted to grow to nearly 500 billion by 2025. As a fast-growing area in commerce, subscriptions hold tremendous opportunities to build a community of customers who share your values. Recharge is the leading subscription management solution helping e-commerce merchants of all sizes launch and scale subscription offerings. Recharge powers the growth of over 15,000 subscription merchants and their communities, turning one-time transactions into long-term customer relationships. Whether you're a direct-to-consumer business or an omni-channel brand, subscriptions strengthen their brand relationships with your customers and make it easy for customers to make repeat purchases. With subscriptions, merchants are able to experience predictable revenue, increased customer loyalty, and higher average order values. Turn transactions into relationships and experience seamless subscription commerce with Recharge. Get started today with subscription payment solution trusted by over 50 million subscribers worldwide by heading over to rechargepayments.com 
forward slash 2x. That is rechargepayment.com forward slash 2x. Did you know that loyal customers are nine times more likely to convert compared to a first-time shopper? That's why exceptional customer service is so important for your retention and growth. I recommend using Gorgeous, the leading help desk for Shopify, Magento, and big commerce merchants. Gorgeous combines all your communication channels, including email, SMS, social media, live chat, and phone into one platform. This saves your team hours per day and makes managing customer orders a breeze. It also integrates seamlessly with your existing tech stack so you can access customer information and even edit, return, refund, or create an order right from your help desk. To learn more, go to gorgeous.com. That's G-O-R-G-I-A-S.com and mention 2X e-commerce podcast for two months free. That is gorgeous.com for two months free. Just mention 2X e-commerce. Yeah, yeah. So so from, from what I took from, from everything, every one of them is customer obsessed and, and that sort of rains down in into their entire you know organization. So because they're so customer obsessed, they want to listen to customers. They want to get a pulse on how customers feel about the experience they're delivering. And then they take those insights to feed into their um, into product development and research. And then they amplify that message into their marketing and it's like a rinse and repeat. Is, is, is that? Yeah, that, that's good. I mean, yeah, I mean, Tribe, um, who make uh, sports bars, uh, and nutrition have a, a you know they have what they call a flywheel where they have they they run events that you know creates a community of customers and they sell um, their products to their customers um, but really what powers that whole business is that they um, um, they have a foundation which is all about eradicating modern day slavery and uh, so you know with the foundation with the community with the events and the products it just feeds so yeah i mean they call it flywheel you could call it rinse and repeat uh it's a it's a bit of a cruder way but it, mm-hmm. i'm saying it but it's, it's, it's the same thing mm-hmm. so yes there is um yeah all, all of those things things are happening yeah, and I think you have that found. You have the foundations, and then you know that every single one of these companies um, has a unique way of doing things and their moats. And so it is so important to read through the case studies, so you're you have a, a wide, um, you know, breadth of of the individual rotors because it's all nuanced. You know, based on their time to market, you know, their products. A lot of things, right, in the markets, and then you know you you just get a broad overview and see what applies to to you or what you could take from from each of them. Is, is that how to approach the, the book? Yeah, I mean that that's a, that's a really good way. So I mean one of the reasons, the, I mean in the book there's actually 16 case studies. There's 15 chapters of uh, of 16. case studies, and the reason there's 16, there's one chapter um, <clears throat> which is um, which has two brands in it. And the reason that chapter has two brands in it is is because it's all about launching <clears throat> in 2020. One that's the chapter with Lick and Clearing, okay. who are a US, um, uh, oh, okay, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> pain relief company. Um, the, the point I was going to make is the reason I wrote 16 case studies, uh, and not, um, not mm. one or two, or even just focused on my own experience is because, yeah, 
every business has got a um, yeah, a different story. I've got the I've got they've got different areas of expertise. But what I also wanted to show is if I can pull out the, the commonalities between all these businesses, there's a good chance that that you know those lessons will apply to any successful DTC business. You know, I want to make sure I had a decent sample size, and not just one and two. So I ended up with sixteen plus my experience at Peppersmith. Yeah, phenomenal, phenomenal, phenomenal stuff. Um, very, very, very interesting. Um, just going back to, um, you know, you mentioned Lick, and um, I was almost a customer of Lick. I, I loved that their 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 DTC that their ads on on in my Instagram. Um, they used people like me in their ads um, from a from an age demographic, um, and it just it just seemed fresh, you know, a new way to rethink, um, you know, um, painting. Although I eventually ended up with um, with one of the other brands, but here here um, looking at Lick, they have a crunch base, right? Um, they have two founders who have realized that okay, for us to build this, we're changing an industry. And for us to build this, um, you know, this this new brand, this category, um, this challenger brand, essentially, um, we're going to need finance. So in their crunch base, they do have investors. Um, how in all of these, in all all sixteen case studies, how important was taking um, just showing proof of concept, going to raise? And obviously, implementing growth strategy. I'm, I'm thinking, do, do you need to raise in D2C to do it well? Um, obviously, along with those strategies, not to diminish the strategies, not about money, but you know, for you to build a D2C brand, what 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 camp are you? Team team bootstrap or team team raise and you know try and scale quick. I mean, you you can do it both, and there is examples in the in the book of both. I mean, I would say prior. Um, most of the brands in the book have raised, yeah, I guess, significant amounts of money. And one of the interesting things about talking to Click, and, Lick, and Clearing in the same chapter is they they had both raised multiple millions um, at at sort of seed. Um, level and then sort of went in, fur- in further of a series A of you know some significant rounds, and I guess the reason they felt they had to do that is because we are just living in a world where it's just so much more competitive. I mean, D to C has become a it's been normalised, especially during the pandemic. So most people would consider D to C as a um, you know a valid place to go and do their shopping, you know, to buy their products and um, yeah, and also, you know, for people who really like D2C, there's so many brands out there who are competing for, you know, for clicks and orders. So the reason that they, um, these two particular businesses felt that it was the right thing to um, sort of invest in their business, in their offer, in, in their capabilities and in their marketing is because they knew, you know, the world had moved on cheap digital um ads just don't exist anymore they know that if they're going to get any serious traction they have to appeal to a lot of customers and they have to draw customers to them the reason lick do such a great job on on instagram and you remember it's the instagram it's not not so much about instagram ads it's about you know what they do what they post is because they want to put great content out there that gets people to engage in the brand i mean lick have this challenge if they just sell um, paints i mean people don't buy paint every week 
I mean, you don't, you know, you don't get like a subscription model of paying. So they need to keep their their customer base engaged with the brand, and the the way they do that is to be, um, you know, put lots of in helpful and inspiring pictures about, you know, this is, you know, this is a, a great look for a room. You you could have that even, you know, if it doesn't involve repaint, it's just like, you know, moving things around. Um, and they also have lots of handy guides about decorating and, you know, wallpapering, painting, all sorts of things. They know they have to be helpful. Um, and then even a better example of this is um Hyatt Denim we mentioned mentioned before so Hyatt Denim make really high quality jeans out in um in West Wales in a place called Cardigan um and they you know they're the fantastic products and the backstory behind why Hyatt Denim do what they do is is fascinating um you know but uh, you, you can read about that in the book but the point i'm going to make today with hyatt denim is that you know the vast majority of their marketing which uh, is not about um, digital ads it's about really high quality newsletters it's about yearbooks it's about events um and all pretty much all of that that content doesn't really talk about jeans or their brand it talks about other things mm. that it knows is going to inspire and engage their customer base. And by doing that, they um, they keep that customer base um, sort of, you know, sort of connected to their brand. And what it means, especially jeans, you mean, you know, most people mm. don't buy jeans on, you know, a particular frequent basis as well. So but you can interact with that brand and then still um, only buy products from them once a year. And that's, you know, that's fantastic because mm -hmm. they know if they can serve, you know, great, relevant content to you that's, uh, you know, going to be interesting and inspiring, that when you do get around, oh, I need a new pair of jeans, they're going to be the first place that you come to. Top of mind. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and, and I think that strategy is really community-centered, if if anything else, because they're, they're, they're creating all this content to attract a, you know, certain, you know, um, persona you know good obviously a really big segment and then um you know they're top of mind interesting super interesting um so earlier on in our conversation you you, you were decrying retail you know retail distribution as to, as to how difficult you know stores are particularly um you know serving um you know smaller brands which you know typically would would, would meet the the dtc profile um what, how did you, uh, uh, Pepper Smith, how did you solve that problem? You know, you, you were, you know, retail first, you know, um, what, what was your retail team, you know, like? Um, how did you sort of get, get into to retail at the time? Yeah, but I mean, retail, you know, that's, uh, I guess that's all we knew. And coming out of Innocent, you know, we, we knew retail. So I guess we were, we were retail, we had a lot of retail expertise. And the, the strategy to start was, you know, let's get into a few high-end um, sort of delis and, and coffee shops and, and health food shops. And then, you know, if we can make that successful, that's a bit, that's a bit like a market test, right? You know, are, are people going to buy this product? Mm -hmm. And if the answer is yes, we can prove sales, we can get into... You know, some of the, some of the you know the the bigger independents we can get to start getting some change like Whole Foods Market they were one of our first customers and then, and then if you can prove it works from there you can get to Holland and Barrett then you can get to Waitrose and you sort of just build and build and build and build on that but it takes a long time and what you know one of the things I learned and and came to love about D2C is you can do that testing and brand building so much 
um, more efficiently and quickly. Uh, I guess you, know, you can do it on a bigger scale mm-hmm. as well. You know, when we were going around with our, our rucksacks full of products in, 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 in London trying to find, you know, the, the best the best new deli or the best new coffee shop, um, we were having to visit everyone by foot. Whereas, you know, on the, in, you know, on the internet, any, anyone can, can find you as long as, you, you know, you, you've got a product that, that stands out. So, you know, we, we love the internet. But I think, you know, interviewing Anthony Fletcher, who was the CEO at Gray's, he put this best mm. um, in terms of, you know, start D to C, build your brand, build your products, iterate, learn how to serve your customers, learn what your, your customers really like. Um, and then uh, you can think about going sort of multi-channel. And a lot of the brands in the book, they're not, you know, they do D to C on they started D to C. But, you know, there's many examples of uh, multi-channel and even omni-channel out there where, you know, bricks and mortar mm. comes into play. And what, and what Anthony told me, and I think he's, he's absolutely right, is, look, if you can get things right in um, using your D2C channel, then you can apply it to retail. You've got a much better chance of success because the retailers, you know, they're pretty unforgiving. If you can't, you know, if you mess up on uh, on deliveries, maybe you haven't got enough products available. If you get your pricing wrong, if you actually put products on shelf that people are not going to buy, you're not going to be in, in that customer for very long. And the, the other hard thing about retail is if you do get it wrong, um, it can take you, you know, years to get back into those stores. I mean, you've, you've lost your, your opportunity. Um, so, you know, using D2C as a way to sort of build up awareness to, you know, to get your, get your products right, to build up a community is a, is a fantastic way. And what Gray's, and furthermore, what Gray's also managed to do is took, took a D2C mentality into retail. And for, for Gray's, that meant rapid iteration. You know, they were the masters uh, sort of looking at customer data and customer feedback and working out what products, you know, were popular, what weren't, what needed to be improved upon. Um, and they've been doing that for years. And then they went into retail and they did the same. And they, um, you know, they absolutely blew the buyer's minds when they said, you know, after four weeks, we want to change our products. You know, we've got 12 products in your store. Uh, we think we can change six of them. Um, and here's the data and here's the, re- you know, the replacements with, with, with data to back that up. Yeah, because those cycles traditionally took a year, two years to work out if a, if a product or a brand was going to be successful. And then all of a sudden, Grace could do it in, 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 in not even months. They could do it in weeks. I mean, uh, Ugly were another great example. It's a huge, um, from Ugly, he, you know, he, did uh, a lot of uh, his um, sort of new products launch on D2C, make it D2C first, make it exciting, uh, and then get feedback on those products. And then if they're successful, you know, they, they can go into into bricks and mortar retail. And what he said to me is like, you know, he can learn more in a week from the data and the conversations he has with customers via his d2c channel than he could in a year on a retailer shelf it's just you know such an abundance of of data because you remember we're talking directly to the end consumer retailers are always just that you know they're, they're that step in the middle you know you know most brands cpg brands consider you know the retailers to be their customers uh, they are their customers, I guess, because they pay the bills. But really, it's about the end consumer. If the end consumer doesn't, you yeah. know, is not enjoying your product, there's, um, yeah, it's not really about what your customers think. It's about the, it's about the consumer. Yeah, they're, they're they're definitely gatekeepers to 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 access in the the, the end user, the consumer, and then with D 2 C, you're you're cutting that that intermediary. 
you know, um, fairly quickly. And, and I love what you talked about in regards to, you know, um, it's all about the data, really. And I, I like the fact that you, you're taking data from the site, but you're also getting data from customers by talking to them. Do you want to just speak a little bit about how to talk to customers, you know, how to get more data, how to get more qualitative data from customers? probably through surveys and um yeah i mean I, that, and, I guess um, the, and groups and yes yeah, sorry, sorry i mean i i get passionate about data because it's just yeah it's just one of the key things that d2c brands the advantages they have over anyone who sells via via wholesalers and, and retail it's just that that abundance of data you, you know when we started out we were amazed it's like you know no we um we started getting orders from customers. And actually, there were a few, you know, sort of celebrities and famous customers in there as well. It's like, wow, you know, we've got this guy, we've got their email, we've got their address. Uh, not that we we did anything crazy with that, but it was just like, oh, all of a sudden, we, we know who's consuming consuming the products. And I think the data comes in two ways. Um, there's sort of that, you know, sort of macro level data it's like how many people have said this is a five-star product how many people are buying it how many people were returning coming back again you know you can just get a sense for for trends but where it gets really powerful as well is when you have direct conversations with the those consumers and this often happens with the surveys as you as you mentioned but there's also you know there's opportunities when customers sort of get in touch with you either via email or or phone you up you know normally it's like oh i put an order in for a, for a delivery uh, it's not arrived. Can you tell me if it's there? It's like, and, you know, as, as good customer service, you solve that problem as quickly as you can for them. But while you are solving that problem, it's your opportunity to interact with that customer. How did you find out about us? You know, what do you like? What, you know, what can we do more? You know, do what do you think of our packaging? All of, all of the things that you, you, you can discover. So it is really, you know, it's all the, um, it's, the, it, it's, the, it's the big data stuff, but also it's, there's nothing more important than those personal reactions. And an example of this in the book as well is, is a business that uh, has got it very right now, but got it very wrong at the start. And that is Tails.com, who make mm-hmm. um, sort of, you know, lots of personalized dog food personalized dog food can be a thing they make uh, loads of different types of dog food depending on the age the size the breed the behaviors of a dog uh, and what happened with them when they started out and this was in i think it was 2014 they came from a background of d2c it's got to just be about you know very quick transactions subscription model quick transaction mm-hmm. oh, go again and what that meant is that they didn't have a uh, <clears throat> uh a, a customer service <clears throat> telephone number. It was hard to find an email. It was hard to get in touch with anyone. They didn't have an address of their business on on their website. And what and what it meant is that those customers are theirs. You know, as a new brand, they were forming no relationships. Those customers needed things that um, mm. from the brand, and maybe they were trying to get in touch with them. Or, but also because there was no interaction, it meant the brand couldn't understand what that was most important to their customers. And um, you know, this mm. happened very early on in, in, in their in their in their business and they got to a point after sort of three four six months where it's like oh maybe this is not working our cpas are really high our you know our ltv our retention values are low i don't think we've, we've maybe got this right this business looks like it might not be viable they had a huge factory they had loads of stuff but you know the, the data was telling them that you know things uh, needed to be corrected and if they weren't corrected quite quickly they they were going to be in trouble and so the correction happened by opening up the business to their customer base 
putting on, you know, have more customer service people, putting on the telephone number, making sure it was easy to you know, to write an email and, and get a quick response. And what they found quickly out of that is that, you know, sometimes their customers just didn't feel loved. You know, dogs are, you know, and pets are really emotive. We love our pets. And what they, what they, you know, customers were feeling is here's a brand who don't really care. So therefore, they don't care about their pets. So they're not the brand for us. And it was only when they, you know, sort of built up their interaction, they could show their customers they did care because they absolutely did. They just weren't talking to their, their mm-hmm. customers in the right way. And they were all right. And they were also able um, to fix some sort of, you know, teething problems they had around their algorithms and, you know, how uh, their, their frequency and what sort of products and stuff, you know, stuff that, you know, because every brand goes through. Um, but they were only able to, to, and to correct that when they have proper conversations with their customer base so yeah so you know data data is this huge informational advantage that all brands have with d2c but you know i always go back to the fact you know you can just talk to your customers and, and nothing can nothing can be better than that super super interesting steve Stephen. one question as, as we round um, this conversation up is team you know, um, we, we talked about the fact that um, I, know, I know you mentioned this is really important in terms of all the case studies in, in, in your book um, are vertically integrated. They, they think about products that are very customer centric, um, you know, and they're very deliberate with their marketing and their branding, essentially, and they're all, you know, um, sort of optimized to build community and um, create content that's relevant to, to the target market. But um, looking internally at... Um, at at the the businesses themselves, um, would you say that um, what? How would you sort of describe their their teams? How 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 are their teams structured? Um, and I know their teams would evolve over time, you know, based on on um, re- really based on on um, you know, on on the maturity of their business. But do you want to just break down a, a bit on on team size? Yeah, and um, the relevant um, you know disciplines you, you need in, in in running these you know a, a substantial you know DTC business. Yeah, I mean the the big thing that all these businesses tend to have. I mean they have some have big teams, some have small teams, some employ hundreds of people, some employ sort of you know less than less than ten. And um, but yeah, it's really important to cover all the bases. I mean, and there's this um, you know you mentioned vertical integration. I mean vertical integration means that you do everything right. Um, and I think one of the big decisions that these these founders have to make or have made is about you know what do they outsource and what do they keep in house. And, um, you know, and the answer, especially if you want to be vertically integrated, you have to have as much as possible in-house. And um, the reason that is important is because, you know, they're learning how to serve their customers best. Yeah? And you can't do that if you're, you know, allowing you've got elements of your business that are really important elements of your business that are served by other people. Great example is customer service. You know, I don't think any of these brands that I interviewed outsource their customer service. And the reason they don't do that is because, again, they want to make sure they've got these authentic conversations and relationships with with, with their customers. So, um, you know, that's that's a really important part of it. And then Bloom, Bloom and Wild had a really good example around tech. So when they started, they had they outsourced all their tech. I forget which country they were they were building their, their, their platform out of. Um, but they just found it. It was just so hard and complicated to build that platform quickly and successfully thinking about, you know, sort of UX and sort of just that, that the, the journeys that customers have to have when they interact with those brands um, by, you know, by doing it, you know, with third parties. They bought it back in-house and they've become, you know, they, they were, you know, 
um, Aaron would, he admitted this to me. He was quite 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 green when it came to tech when he started, um, but now Bloom and Wild mm. they have their own tech blog on their website. You know, they've become technology leaders and experts because they brought it back into house. Uh, they brought it back in house, and, and you know, they've and the reason they've done that is because it's the best way to serve their customers. And what they've also done. And going back to Bloom and Wild, they have now this thing, you, you probably would have seen it, where you have the ability to um, opt out of certain emails. Um, for example, you know, sort of Mother's Day and Father's Day, you know, there's a, you know, a good um, a proportion of their customers who don't appreciate the fact that they get uh, get an email about um, about Mother's Day. So, you know, they don't actually, they want to interact with the brand, but they don't want to see that particular message. So they set up a, uh, a program mm-hmm. where, you know, customers could opt out of certain campaigns. Yeah, and this was a huge undertaking in terms of the you know the tech and if you want, want to manage sort of your marketing list and your, your, your customer database, this is a difficult thing to do. But they could do it because they had the technology in house, but also the desire. They wanted to do this, uh, and um, yeah, and the, and the customers really really appreciated it as well. And that turned out to be such a good idea. It's been adopted by sort of D 2 C brands yeah, across the world. You, you'll see lots yes. of different examples of that now. But you know, when he, when Bloom and Wild first started doing it a few years ago, it was an it was a new thing and a big endeavour. But they could do it because they had in house teams who, who were up for it. Interesting. Very, very interesting, Mike. Um, we could go on and on and on. Um, for those people who, you know, found these conversations interesting, there it's it's all expanded in your in your book. Um the best the name of the book is called The Direct to Consumer Playbook. Um it's available on on Amazon and um several other, you know, book um book book websites published by Corgan Page. Um do you run a blog yourself? Do you are you active online? Um where where can people sort of, you know, follow you if um um they they, they really want to have, um you know follow your work and and um put your words. Yeah, no, and I'd encourage that. Please do um, um, come and come and find me out and ask me questions about your sort of D to C, you know, sort of founded businesses. Uh, in particular, I love to hear what people think about the book. Um, and you can find me. I am um, you know quite active on LinkedIn. So just search Mike J Stevens on LinkedIn, or you know. Mike Peppersmith, you'll you'll find me, and also on Twitter, um, um, my handle is. Uh, open Mike Stevens, uh, and one of the best places you can you can find yeah what I th- what I think and what I'm up to is on my website, um, and, and that is my consultancy website that I actually run with my wife who's a sustainability expert, uh, and that's um, mm. www.stevens.earth. Um, you will find um, yeah lots of lots of information on there about what I do, how I help businesses, but you also there's you know there's a blog there as well, so you can read about some of the case studies if you want to get a flavour of what's in the book. Um, and uh, yeah, but please uh, yeah get, get in touch. I, I love to talk to people about all all of this stuff. I appreciate your time, Mike. It's been it was a pleasure, as I said earlier, and I was really looking forward to this conversation. You didn't disappoint. Great. Well, thanks. It's been fun being on. So thanks very much. Cheers. Thanks for listening to this episode of 2X e-commerce. We encourage you to connect with our community of 2X e-commerce listeners on our Facebook group, e-commerce growth accelerator mastermind. Just search for 2X e-commerce on Facebook to find it. Answer three questions and you'll be approved. Grab the show notes of this episode on our website, 2xecommerce.com. 
Finally, if you haven't already, give the show a review on your podcasting app. Catch you on the next show and keep growing.